feel like I'm lugging a bunch of stuff up here, but I'm still making the transition from preaching from a manuscript to my iPad. And if Dr. John MacArthur could do that at like 83 years of age, I guess I could be forgiven for doing it in my early 60s. Appreciate the music. Thank you, our worship team and the songs. Thank you, Brother David, for praying this morning, bringing us to the throne of grace with just so many needs. I'd like us to go just for another moment as an expression of our dependence to the Lord. O you who have made everything, O Father, you in whom we live and move and have our being, we lift our voices up to you tonight, this morning, and we say that no man, no person can do anything unless it's given him from God. We are creatures and we want to express that. We need now your help in this hour, your help to give you our hearts. And we profess that we are learning, are coming to learn that worship is giving way more than it is getting. And so we give to you now our hearts and our attention. We pray that you would make sure that every soul in this room is coming to faith in Christ or feeding upon Christ this morning. So we pray for that. We pray for the effectiveness of your word and that we'd be humble before it and tremble at it and hear it as not as the word of man but as the word of God that it is. We pray this now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you came today and you didn't realize the significance of this weekend, uh, let me catch you up. 506 years ago in 1517, early in the 16th century, a German Lutheran monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 statements or theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And in his sights were the heirs of the Roman Catholic Church. And what was at stake in that moment was the answer to the all-important question, how is a person right with God? Or more personally, how may I know that God has me, that he possesses me? And if you're a little boy or a little girl, or maybe not so little or not, maybe you're in the last year of your life, you're old and gray and wrinkled, then this is the one question you must ask in answer, how may I be right with God? And Luther had wrestled with it also. And so his heart was pierced by Paul's words in Romans 1 in verses 16 through 18. Paul said, 
right before this, in verse 15 of chapter 1, he said, Look, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And here's why. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith, that is the idea of the beginning to the end, as it is written, and he quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And it was through these sacred lines of Scripture that the anxious monk found peace with God. And two figures above all lit the fire that ignited what we call today the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther in Germany and then John Calvin, the Frenchman, who long labored in Geneva, Switzerland. And there are five affirmations that came out of that period that were instrumental in the recovery and the preserving of biblical and historical Christianity. What Pastor Kevin DeYoung says in his book on the Heidel Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, the faith we almost lost. And by that biblical and historical Christianity, I mean the God-exalting, Christ-centered, word-saturated faith of the apostles. The faith that the apostle Jude was so very jealous to defend. He said, beloved in Jude 3, though I, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here now are the five affirmations from that critical revival and recovery, first in Latin, then in English. Sola Scriptura, the Scriptures alone. It is in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that Paul says, not so much telling us about the mechanics of Scripture, but the source of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not only is there sola scriptura, there is sola fide, by faith alone. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul clumps this with grace together. Paul writes this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And that this there is referring to faith. He says, It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, that parallels and finds its source in Romans 1, 16 and 18. He says, in another way of expression, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, it's demonstrated, it's made clear apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Sola Scriptura, the Scriptures alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, 
by grace alone, again, it's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that bring both faith and grace together in one verse. And then there's Solus Christus, Christ alone. In fact, we sing the song by Keith and Kristen Getty in Christ alone quite frequently. Listen to the Apostle Peter when he's preaching about Jesus before the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem in Acts 4. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Solus Christus. And then lastly, Sole Deo Gloria. Two are for the glory of God alone. And two of Paul's doxologies shout out this ultimate nature, out the, the ultimate nature of God's glory. First Romans 11 and verse 36. We saw this in the last few weeks. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16, Paul is giving Timothy a solemn charge. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. But he concludes his charge with a doxology, not even at the end of the book. Close, but not there. But it doesn't mention the glory of God, but it's entirely surrounded. It's entirely infused with God's glory. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. One reformation, five solas, scripture, faith, grace, Christ, the glory of God. This is God's doing. And it was there, and it was then that every person, and even now, can find the answer to this most important question. How can I be right with God? Make no mistake, what is the role, what is the goal of pastoral ministry? It is to prepare every person for the day of their death. And so what do we find in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. You may turn with me there. Paul is writing to his young protege. You might know that the second letter to Timothy is Paul's final, the final of those 13 letters that bear his name. And this is no pedestrian Timothy. It is one whom he calls my true child in the faith. First Timothy 1 to and then in 2 Timothy 1-2, he says, my beloved child. This is not uh, just a vacuous, inane, meaningless, everyday email or piece of correspondence. He's writing to his true child in the faith, his beloved child. He writes as a man with purpose. He says, I am writing these things to you. But as a man uncertain of God's providential dealings with him, he says, I hope to come to you soon. Very much understanding the spirit of the book of James, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. 
And so he says, I hope to come to you soon, but followed by the contingent reality. If I delay, no worries. He expresses a timeless truth to Timothy that is ours as well. He tells us about the identity and function of the church. It's there in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. What is it? What's that identity? The household of God is the church of the living God. And I'm fine if you want to verbalize this in reverse. The church of the living God is the household of God. But you see then piling on here, kind of this layering, the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see this. And I think you can kind of see an inside to outside movement in the two descriptions of identity. The author, Philip Jensen, he simplifies this expression of the household of God. Here it is. God's household is his church, and God gathers his family together through the preaching of the gospel. What are we? We, as the household of God, are his church. We are gathered together for the preaching of the gospel and therefore to take it to the nations, to make disciples of the nations. So the church is both the called out ones, that's rooted in the very word ecclesia, but we're the called together assembly through the preaching of the gospel. That's why it makes sense for the writer of the book of Hebrews in his lettuce patch of summons to the gathered church is to say this. Here's a priority. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, the gathering together. I need you. You need me. We need one another. The only way we'll function as a body is if we're not disconnected, but rather connected, rather gathered regularly to one another. So the church is both the called out ones, the called together assembly through the preaching of the gospel. And it's a gospel that Paul dials and he dials kind of into a sharper focus in Galatians 2.5 by referring to the truth of the gospel. Yes, the gospel is good news. But Paul, as he's writing to the Galatians, taking them to task for abandoning the gospel of which he says there is no other, refers to this truth of the gospel. That makes sense with our passage. So look at that word just for a moment. I always thought if I had another daughter, maybe I could name her Aletheia, as in truth. I think that word is so beautiful, right? When you take a Greek word, a feminine noun. But look at that, that word truth. And then look at the word church, right? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And they meet up, they match, they interlock in the realm of function. The one who is the truth, John 14, 6, the one who John says in his prologue is the true light that is coming into the world who says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and who says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, which I believe is the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, more so than the necessary expression 
of a priority role for Peter in the church. He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is his, his apostle, Paul, in one sense the least of the apostles, in another the chief, the least because he persecuted the church of God, Maybe the chief, because he says as he writes, I, he basically says, I outworked all the others. He engraves with permanence here in 1 Timothy 3.15, a function, not a function, but I would rather say the function. I think it's better to translate the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he engraves here in 1 Timothy 3.15, with permanence, the function of the church of Jesus Christ. The church, that is we, brothers and sisters, as we say, if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job, but it's the role of each particular church in the zip code God has placed us to serve as the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so from the hand of Paul, he says, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As I said grammatically, I think it's better translated as the NIV, the KJV, the New American Standard, the pillar and buttress of the truth, or the pillar and ground of the truth, rather than a pillar and buttress. But I digress. Forgive me for thinking that I could school the translators of the ESV. I simply side with the NIV and the KJV. So what is this truth, you ask? What is this truth that rests upon and is supported by the church? This truth is God's truth. Ultimately, an ultimate reality found in Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And no one frames it quite like John in the prologue, both of his gospel and 1 John. And we don't mean this simplistically as in only truth versus error. It's not like when you, the other day I was thinking someone's anniversary was November 3rd, and then I realized, no, uh, it's actually November the 5th. And I thought, okay, that's, I had that in error. But that's not what we're speaking about or Paul is meaning when he says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. He doesn't mean simplistically only truth versus error, that is right versus wrong, but he means the exclusive claim of truth in Jesus is God's ultimate word. There is no other. There is no other truth. There is no other true reality. You would say, well, that's an oxy. It's, a, it's like a word. You don't, it's redundant, right? True reality. In Colossians 2, Paul describes his struggle in prayer for them in the Laodicea. Listen to what he says. And as he describes his prayer, the beginning of Colossians 2, it ends with this great truth reality of Jesus. In fact, it makes me think of that scene at the end of the movie of National Treasure. He says, as he prays, that their hearts 
may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it was the great Dutch theologian and statesman, Abraham Kuyper, in 1880, said it this way in connecting the church's guardianship of the truth and the lordship of Christ. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine, not one square inch. But lest we think about this wrongly, we have an old, old friend to advise us. His name is Matthew Henry. And he makes us aware of how we may view the relationship between the church and truth incorrectly. He says this, the truth itself is the pillar and ground of truth. Not that the authority of the scriptures depends upon that of the church as the papists pretend. For truth is the pillar and ground of the church. But the church holds forth the scripture and the doctrine of Christ as the pillar to which a proclamation is affixed holds forth the proclamation. You have to think about that. Does that make sense? Let me read that again. But the church holds forth the scripture and the doctrine of Christ as the pillar to which a proclamation is affixed holds forth the proclamation. If you go out and you see a sign on a post, the power, the, mess, and the, the message is not in the post, but it's in what's there. If it's like, you know, free mat- mattresses, $5 each, that's where the reality, the truth is in that message there. And so he quotes, of, he quotes from Ephesians 3.10 when he says, even, this is Matthew Henry, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places is made known by the church to the manifold wisdom of God. But still, how is the church the pillar and buttress of the church? How do we do this? The church stands for the truth. The church speaks the truth. We as the church of King Jesus are to hold fast to the faith. We're to proclaim the truth as we've already heard. We're to defend the faith once delivered to the saints, Jude 3. But we must first learn it. And by application, let me commend you moms and dads that are seeking to catechize your children to take daily the scriptures even in the smallest of units and bite-sized pieces. That's how the church will be and continue to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. We cannot pass on what we've learned. We must first learn it. We must savor it and line by line pass the faith and the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2, 5 to the next generation. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, 31 that Paul says, there's a very clear goal of our corporate gathering and worship. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's a great way to leave here. When you leave, say to someone, did you learn this morning and are you encouraged? That's a legitimate goal of our corporate worship. 1 Corinthians 14, 31. That all may learn 
and all may be encouraged. So dads and moms, husbands and wives, singles with other friends, at home and in preparation for corporate worship, are you ordering your home and cultivating an ethos in your families where the truth of the gospel may be learned? Is your home discipleship oriented? Or is it like we've learned everything we need to know and there's nothing that anyone can tell us? An unknown gospel, an unknown truth can hardly be supported or defended. But this is not simply the purview of our churches. Eric Metaxas in his book, Letter to the American Church, he's challenged He challenges us, and I want to read from him for a moment. So that if we find ourselves like William Wilberforce, that we're told to keep our faith private, even as he was told that his religious view that slavery was wrong had no business poking out into into the wide world. And I want to read this for us for a moment. He says, but where did we ever get the idea that we should mind our own business along such lines? As though the truth of God were a parochial, subjective idea that had no bearing on anything beyond our private prayer time in churches, and I might add the four walls of this sanctuary. Where did we who claim to be the church ever get the idea that we shouldn't express any number of things too loudly? That we shouldn't, for example, express the biblical view of human sexuality as sacred, as a sacred and mysterious bond which God created only for the marriage between men and women for life? Where did we get the idea that we don't have an obligation to tell the world what God says about such things, about the unborn and about human freedom and human rights or about anything including the deadly perniciousness of Marxist atheistic philosophy whether in economics or in any other sphere. Where did we get the idea that we shouldn't be at the forefront in criticizing the great evil of communistic countries that brutally persecute religious minorities in ways that bring to mind the Nazis themselves? And he goes on to add, why should we not speak out against American and international corporations that do business with them until they force them to take human rights seriously and change their inhuman practices? How dare, Mr. Metaxas says, we be silent about such things. By the end... By the last lines of 1 Timothy 3, the great confession of godliness and its mystery is evident. We find this undeniable truth, or what you might say, a set of undeniable truths. You see that in verse 16. Great indeed, Paul writes, we confess. That is, we say the same things. Is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And what is remarkable here is what Philip Jensen has noted, and I just paraphrase, is not what we do for God or have done 
for him, but what he has done for us in Christ. He has sent his one and only son, very God and very man, to take on human flesh, to become like us, taking the form of a servant to live, to love, to suffer, to be spat upon, to have a crown of thorns placed on his head, a sword in his side, to be mocked at and ridiculed, the most lovely of men, but to die, to bear in his body on the tree the cruel punishment and wrath that we deserved. We're culpable. It's why Peter in his sermon on Pentecost said to those who may not have physically touched the Lord Jesus, you put him on that tree. But it was God's deal to make him alive again. To raise him again in a demonstration of God's indescribable, incalculable power. So that the Son of God might ascend in and authority and might to the right hand of God and to the pounding of the gavel in God's core realm where he reigns in perfect justice and might and authority and power and intercedes for us, his church. And make no doubt, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's why Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4. And he will raise, he will raise the bodies of his own to meet him in the air, and thus we shall forever be with the Lord. This is the truth. This, in our day, 500 and six years after that great Protestant Reformation, the affirmation of the Scriptures alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. This is the truth. This is the truth worth defending. This is the truth of which the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. There is, my dear friends, no other truth. There was a girl named Jill. C.S. Lewis tells us about her in the silver chair. He says, although the sight of water made Jill feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay a lion, lay the lion. You might know his name. Aslan. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers. 
for a moment and then turned away as it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion. If only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. That's Aslan. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world, that is the world of Narnia. And she realized it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen his lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't. Come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. My friends, there is no other truth. There is no other who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no other truth that we as the church have been given this most noble guardianship of not simply knowing, of not simply preaching, of not simply defending, but advancing to all the nations, preaching it till all the elect of God will come home. Come, come to the only stream. There is no other. Come to him, our Lord Jesus.